Hi, this episode is with Michelle O'Dont, and like Nina Hartley, I'm kind of surprised at the number of people who hadn't heard of Michelle or weren't familiar with his work. Um, but he is a French obstetrician who's been practicing medicine for 67 years, and he has contributed a great body of work to um, research in childbirth and breastfeeding and um, also sexuality, really, because as is revealed through these interviews, you know, there's no there's no separation between birth and sexuality. Um, I always talk about the connection. And after talking to Michelle, I am changing even the way that I refer to birth and sex. It's, you know, it's all one in the same. It's the same hormone hormonal cascade. Um, it's the same sort of reflexes as he talks about the ejection reflex, whether it's the fetal ejection reflex or the sperm ejection reflex. Um, same physiological, biochemical things happening, whether you're making love or birthing a baby, which is also <laughs> a great act of making love. Um, so nonetheless, he, in my world, is a legend and was, I, I mean, the fact that I got to sit and spend an afternoon with him um, is such a blessing and I feel really grateful. And, you know, <clears throat> we got, we have uh, two episodes. We talked for about an hour and a half, so I'm going to split these up into two episodes. And Michelle, you know, has a French accent. And so I hope that that's not a deterrent for people um, because he has a lot of fascinating things to say and I can understand him quite well. Um, so I hope that you will listen in. You might have to tune your ear a little bit more closely than usual. You might not be able to do, do as much multitasking as you're taking in this episode, but definitely worth um the time to hear what he has to say. And the interesting thing about him is he's really into the science and the research. It all comes down to that. Like what, what does the science and research show and what kind of inquiries can we make um, into human nature that can then lead to revelations through the study of these things. And this first part is a lot about um, birth and culture and the birthing environment and the needs of laboring women. And the next episode will get a little bit more into sexuality. Uh, we talk about transcendent states, ecstatic states in the second episode. And I'm not sure yet if they're going to be back to back or if there's going to be space in between. So just letting you know. I'm not sure how I'm rolling these next few episodes out. Okay, and I'm at Shakti Fest this weekend. If you're there, come say hello, please. Next weekend, I'm at Lightning in a Bottle Festival and a uh, teaching adult sex ed. 
And my school has launched, my school for women's sexual wellness, the Artemis School. You can go to artemisschool.com and find out about my certification program in women's holistic sexuality. It is super exciting. Okay, talk to you later. Okay. Oh, it sounds very good, yes. It does, yeah. So let's just chat for a moment and I'll adjust our sound. So tell me when it's uh, official. becoming official. Usually serious. I often just sneak up on people and just start recording as we're talking and then we just go into it. Yes, it's good to know when it's <laughs> <Okay>. serious. <laughs> it sounds good. So um, I think we can get serious. Do we have to be serious? No, no. I, <laughs> I mean official. <laughs> okay, let's be official now. Okay. Okay, so I'm here with Michelle Odant. And, you know, I have been, as a birth doula, I've been a birth doula since 2005. And I'm sure I've known about you since then. And so when people don't know who you are, I don't even know how to begin to describe the work that you've um, put out in the world because it's huge. I, I don't even know where to begin to describe um, your contribution to the world of childbirth. It's, it's really unbelievable. So I would like to hear in your words, Michelle, um, you know, what you've created, con contributed to the world of childbirth and at maybe the best place to start is like where did you begin yeah it's a long story it is a long story <laughs> if i had to summarize i might say that i consider myself as the, an interdisciplinary student in human nature mm. my interest is human nature that's why I studied medicine. You know, when I started to study medicine in 1948, wow. at that time, that was the only way to study human beings. There were not, no, what we call now, human sciences, you know, they were not emerging. So my interest has always been human beings. So in the context of the late 1940s, after the Second World War, best thing to do was to study medicine. That Fascinating, yes. yeah. And uh, when I was a medical student, it happened that it was uh, winter 1953-1954 that I spent six months in the maternity unit of a Paris hospital as what was called in the French system an externe. Externe means a medical student with minor clinical responsibilities. So I had already at that time a certain knowledge in obstetrics, but just six months after that I was doing cardiology, after that I was doing urology and so on and so on. And, uh, so it was just one of your rotations in medical that school? That was originally, originally. And uh, in fact, uh, I realized at that time, in the context of the early 1950s, that the best way to be effective 
in medicine was to, to do surgery, to be a surgeon. Hmm. And at that time, there was no effective pharmacology. It was the very beginning, you know, that. Uh, so that's why I was trained as a surgeon. Originally, I am a surgeon. Hmm. But... Just a general, sur- I mean, were you trained specifically? Because now doctors are trained very now, specifically. Now surgeons are specialized. Right. But at that time, uh, we were really general surgeons. Okay. Uh, in fact, in the medical journal Lancet, uh, well-known medical journal, I've been presented as one of the last general, real general surgeons. Wow. That means that uh, people my generation... On the same day, they could, for example, operate a gallbladder, a broken leg, caesarean section. Uh, heart uh, surgery? Pro- pro- uh, no, not heart. Okay. There was no heart surgery <laughs> at that then. time. Not then. Yeah, makes at sense. At that time, surgery was much more abdominal and limbs. <laughs> so Interesting. That was but we were general surgeons. So that's the way to understand what happened. So I want to interject here because... I think some of, I think that specialization in medi- medicine is brilliant in a lot of ways, and I also think it's problematic because we're not looking at the whole person. Today, the main obstacle to new awareness, to realize what's happening in general, is specialization. That's why I present myself as an interdisciplinary student in human nature. Interdisciplinary is not the same as pluridisciplinary. And how many... Interdisciplinary means you you don't add information provided by several scientific disciplines. You combine different ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. So I present myself as an interdisciplinary student. And how many years have you been practicing medicine? So I told you that uh, I started to go to, to uh, as a medical student to, oh. to go to, uh, to be trained in hospitals in 1949. Okay. 1949, I did six months in obstetrics during the winter 53-1954. So I've been practicing medicine from in the middle of the 20th century, a good knowledge of the, the history of this. The important point to understand what happened is that it's an, in the 1950s that the new technique of caesarean section, mm. what is called the segmental technique, developed. But at that time, obstetricians had no surgical background, hmm. only new, but for self, vaginal birth, and so on. So, so at that time, in practice, in general, the caesarean section was performed in the framework of emergency surgery. So uh, the doctor, the obstetrician, was asking the surgeon, please do a C-section. That's why I became familiar with this new technique, particularly 1958-1959, I was in the French army during the independence war in Algeria, doing all kinds of emergency surgery, including caesarean section. So mm. that, that's why uh, I always directly or indirectly 
been involved in childbirth mm. <laughs> since the 1950s. Well, but originally through the cesarean section <laughs> to a great extent. <laughs> yeah, you were on the for you, you were on the forefront of that, and you saw the evolution of of cesarean section and and gosh, so many things that have changed in childbirth over the years. And I love that after what sixty something years of practicing medicine, that you're still calling yourself a student. Um, that's a student in human nature. Student in Not human in nature. Medicine. No, no, no. Medicine. But yeah, but but that medicine me, is a way to, stu- to, to study, study human beings. Sure, um, but that to me explains like the amount of literature and research and and sort of even just passion that you've um, devoted to the field of, you know, childbirth, I'm sure to other fields as well, but I primarily know you through the field of of birthing and obstetrics. Um, And I think it is your willingness to learn and to um, explore. And you've been doing that the whole time. So how many books have you written now? Or published? I think it's about 13. I would have to recalculate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's about 13 books at, in about 22 or 23 languages. Mm-hmm. So it's an approximate. Okay. <laughs> Great. And okay, so let's go back to childbirth. So on one of your rotations, you ended up in a mater- maternity ward. Um, and how did you get more interested in childbirth? You must un- understand that in 1962, I was in charge of a surgical unit in a French state hospital, an hour from Paris. I went there in charge of a surgical unit. But what I didn't know before going there, that there was a small maternity unit for just for local needs, 200 births a year, two midwives, and no doctor hmm. officially in charge of the maternity unit. It was like that at that time, you know, nobody, nobody. So when the two midwives learned that I knew the new technique of cesarean section, there was locally an old surgeon still doing the, the, conver- the classical technique, when they realized that I have a certain obstetrical background, when they had problems, they were calling me. So that's how, unofficially, I, in addition to my work as a surgeon, I was interested in what was happening in the small maternity unit, but interested in such a way that we uh, modified many aspects of the practice. I was always reconsidering what midwife had learned at school. You know, I do that because I've learned that at school, but why not being critical? I realized the importance of the environment of the birth process. In a rural place, many women at that time, that was early 1960, were women from villages, beginning of birth in hospital were obviously inhibited in a hospital. Mm-hmm. What to do to help them to forget. So gradually, gradually we have been changing uh, many uh, aspects of the environment. For example, one day we transformed 
a conventional delivery room into a small home-like birthing room, a small place where women could forget that they're in a hospital. Mm -hmm. No visible medical equipment. That was absolutely new uh, at that time. So that was the beginning, you know. But also, women were not uh, comfortable or inhibited in hospital. We bought a piano. We bought a piano and invited, we invited them to, to sing together. You know? One day I bought a, a paddling pool, a garden, a inflatable pool. What inspired the, you to bring in a pool? How did you know to do that? Uh, it started from physiological consideration. We could uh, guess that immersion in water at temperature of the body might be in some situations a way to break a, a kind of a vicious circle. A typical vicious circle during childbirth is women with terrible back pain, mm-hmm. so a lot of stress hormones, and failure to progress. Stress hormone, no oxytocin, failure to progress. It's a vicious circle. How to break a vicious circle? So I thought, uh, it was a bit rational in fact, that immersion in water at temperature of the body might be a way to help women to uh, release some inhibitions, to, to a way to, to avoid drugs. Is was to avoid noise. So the point is that with all these changes, you know, all this uh, uh, the environment that our small maternity units became more and more popular, mm. where more and more people from other t- cities, from Paris, not far away, and so on and so on. So what happened is that when I arrived in Pithiviers, name of the town, there were 200 birth years, then it was growing, 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 until the time when we had 1,000 birth years. Wow. And from 200 to 1,000. And so during many years, we had 1,000 birth years. I was still the only doctor for 1,000 birth years. Oh my. And six midwives. Oh my goodness. And six midwives. So no time for surgery. I needed assistant for operations. This is how I became an obstetrician, indirectly, in mm-hmm. an unexpected way. You know, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of Ina May's story of becoming a midwife where she just, you know, people started having babies and she had to learn how to support them. And yes, it's, it's, it's another way to an be accidental. It's <laughs> another way to be involved in uh, childbirth by accident. In fact, I wrote about that. I learned I wrote about this comparison because I've published uh, a preface for the French editions of her book, the books by Anna Megaskin. Mm-hmm. And in my preface, I was saying that I'm often, we, I'm associated with Anna Megaskin. <laughs> what do we have a com- in common, you know? <laughs> Only she w- was belonging to the hippie culture in <laughs> California. That was her. Originally, I'm a surgeon. Apparently, what do we have in common? What we have in common, that both of us became involved in childbirth by accident. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Very different background. And it's interesting because in many conferences we have been associated. 
it happened that, for example, in a conference about bridge birth, uh, Adam and I were associated, you know, mm -hmm. such different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet you've both been voices for, um, you know, normalizing childbirth, not as a medical procedure, but as, you know, going back to kind of the natural ways that women birth, mm. right? There, there's, there's a parallel there of advocating for these home-like environments and, um, yeah. I mean, midwives yes. in general. Uh, in general, I'm not advocating anything. Ah. I'm not promoting, promoting anything. Uh -huh. I never use the term natural childbirth. I don't promote natural childbirth. I'm a student. And in particular, as a student in human nature, I'm, I try to improve our understanding of the birth process. Mm -hmm. So I don't promote... I don't promote natural childbirth. What is important is not to promote something, is to to try to understand mm -hmm. better what happened at birth, to understand better the basic need of laboring women. Uh, sometimes it's dangerous to promote a behavior. Mm -hmm. In general, it's not effective. Mm -hmm. We can give some uh, uh, analogy, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, for thousands of years, people have been Promoting love. Mm -hmm. Promotion of love is widespread. <laughs> Look at what happened in the world. I'm not sure it has been very effective. Mm. People are promoting breastfeeding. Look at statistics of breastfeeding. Number of yeah. women who breastfeed is decreasing. The duration of breastfeeding is decreasing. Difficulties in breastfeeding are more and more common. Point is not to promote breastfeeding. And the same way for childbirth. Since the middle of the 20th century, there have been groups of people promoting natural childbirth. Sure. But look at what happens. Births are more and more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. Women are losing their capacity to give birth. So the point is not to promote something. And you are a student. You don't promote anything. Mm. You under, try to understand. You try to collect information. You try to make synthesis of information. You try to transmit information but you don't promote anything. And for all these issues, we have to start from questions. We have to raise the right questions. For example, about love, instead of promoting love again and so again and again, we might wonder, how does the capacity to love develop? We have to start from that. Oh, how? Ooh. I how? know you have something to say about that. Yes. Yeah. Or, uh, and, Uh, today, we have met said that uh, emerging scientific disciplines offer in answers to this question. Or instead of promoting breastfeeding, which is absolutely useless now, everybody knows that human milk is the best for the baby. People know that. That's not an issue. The question is how to develop the capacity to breastfeed. Mm. And you can immediately, if you raise from the, start from the right question, immediately you find answers, several kinds of answers. The main one, of course, is to realize the continuum between birth physiology and physiology of lactation. It's useless to promote 
breastfeeding in countries where most women don't give birth by themselves. They yeah. replace their natural hormones by drip of synthetic oxytocin or caesarean section. They don't give birth by themselves. If most women don't give birth, you cannot have good breastfeeding statistics. There are always individual exceptions, but mm-hmm. and it's safe for childbirth. It's useless to promote childbirth, absolutely useless. The point is to wonder, but what are the basic needs of labor women? How to, can we understand the birth process in the light of modern physiology? So uh, the point is not to promote something. I got I it. I don't promote anything. Yeah, I don't promote I natural childbirth. You. I never use the term natural childbirth. Yeah. I raise questions as a student. Fabulous. I hear you. Yes. Yes. And absolutely, it's much more powerful to um, ask the questions and look at the data and look at the history. Um, So I hear you. Thank you for that. Um, So let's talk about what are those needs of women in labor, those those things that you've observed over the years and documented through your mm. research at the Primal Primal Health Institute, is that right? Primal Research uh, Primal Re- Center. Research Center, okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, today, to talk about basic need of labor in women, it's an opportunity to realize the contrast, discrepancy, the contradiction between what we are learning from modern physiologists and what is our cultural conditioning. Mm. It's as if suddenly today there are two ways to understand the birth process. So let's look at how we can understand the birth process when we think like modern physiologists. When we think like modern physiologists, we can say that the birth process is an involuntary process. Since it is under the control of primitive brain structures, not the hormonal flow necessary to give birth to the baby and to the placenta, is coming from primitive brain structures. Primitive means brain structure, so we, we share with all the other mammals, roughly with some, some value. It's an involuntary process. In general, one cannot try to help an involuntary process. In, but, but, when you think like physiologists, what is important is to identify possible inhibit, inhibitory factors, inhibitory situations. Factor that can make this involu- can disturb this involuntary process. So that's the role of physiology to identify this inhibitory factor. So when we think like physiologists today, there is a keyword related to childbirth is the keyword protection. Mm. The only thing one can do when a woman in labor is to protect her against factors, situations that make the, birth, make the birth more difficult. The key word is protection, protection. We cannot help an involuntary process, but we can prote- protect it. And modern physiology has the power to identify 
such inhibitory factors. Uh, for that, we many ways to do that. We can start from established concept. One of them is the concept of antagonism between adrenaline and oxytocin. It means that when mammals, including human mammals, are releasing emergency hormones of the adrenaline family, they cannot release oxytocin, the main hormone in childbirth. Is super. So starting from that, we can understand what can make the birth more difficult from this perspective. For example, the room is a little bit cold, but adrenaline, so think of that. Or there is somebody around releasing adrenaline. And today, with sophisticated method of uh, stu for studying direct brain-to-brain -brain communication, we can explain that the release of adrenaline is contagious. Mm. So if somebody is releasing adrenaline, the risk is transmitted to the laboring woman. The labor is more difficult. So, but there is another concept, particularly important, essential, when we talk about human beings. A way to explain to the difficulties to interpret the difficulties of human birth, why human births are difficult in general. The main reason, as we can understand today, is the high development, the power of this part of the brain that we call the neocortex, mm -hmm. the new cortex. The, that is to say, the part of the brain thanks to which we can communicate with language, do radio programs, and so on and so on. That's what makes human beings special, this powerful neocortex, the thinking brain, the brain of the intellect. Uh, what's important to understand, it is that some aspect of human potential are, can be obscured, can be repressed by, by neocortical activity, the activity of the intellect. Uh, to understand better, it's good to go, not to talk just about childbirth, mm. but to talk about other aspects of what we call neocortical inhibition. I'll give another example. I might give several examples, I give one. It's commonplace to say that the, among humans, the sense of smell is weak. Hmm. In fact, it's not true. The point is that the human sense of smell is obscured, is repressed by neocortical activity. Hmm. It's, a, uh, it's an example of what is called neocortical inhibition. And that is demonstrated by interesting uh, experiment looking at the sense of smell before and after drinking wine. When the, the study has been published officially, seriously, when you drink wine, you reduce neocortical activity. You reduce inhibitions. You mm -hmm. eliminate inhibitions, it's well known. But after that, the scent of smell is more powerful. Mm. So that um, you have to eliminate, uh, to reduce neocortical activity, to reduce some inhibitions. You know, when you drink. Uh, a glass of champagne, after that, you can dare, you dare to do 
but you would not do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very life and so on. So, so that's an important point. That's special to human beings, the, the power of, of the neocortex. So that's, that's a way what, what people need to understand. Need to understand that um, the nature found a solution to overcome the human handicap. Human uh, beings, women, have the power to give birth. But this power is usually inhibited by the activity of the power, think powerful brain of the intellect, of the, of the. So nature found a solution. Uh-huh. It's simple, easy to explain. When a woman is giving birth, the neocortex, the brain of the intellect, the thinking brain, must stop working. It's not its business. Mm-hmm. The only important thing people must understand. And today, uh, beginning of the 21st century, there are still some people who can understand the solution that nature found to make childbirth possible among humans, in spite, in spite of this powerful neocortex. Simple solution. When a woman is giving birth, her neocortex must stop working. That's all. But that's the, so counterintuitive. I mean, we don't have a lot of opportunities to practice that. I mean, at least in this culture that I'm in, um, there's the idea of it's, it's not common knowledge necessarily um, about this piece you're talking about, about the neocortex. And um, I'm just thinking about like other other opportunities to practice, right? If there's a way to practice turning off the thinking brain. The point is not so much to practice uh-huh. on yourself, it's much more to understand what can be done when a woman is in labor mm. so that her neocortex is not stimulated at all. Mm-hmm. It became a big issue at a, at a turning point in the history of mankind, which what is called commonly called the Neolithic Revolution, that mm-hmm. to say the control of nature, agriculture, animals, boundaries. Before that time, women, from what we know in general, were just isolating themselves to give birth. Isolating themselves, no neocortical stimulation, isolation in a small place and so on. But after that, like animals, because animals like do all that. mammals, yeah. like all mammals, yes. But after that, birth became socialized, controlled by the, the the culture. So that's why now it's so difficult to understand what is essential, this solution that nature found. But it's something that can be uh, observed. Uh, even now, occasionally, there are still some women who give birth easily, mm-hmm. occasionally, without need for drugs. And in this case, obviously, there is a reduced neocortical control. For example, obviously, they are cutting themselves off from our world, forgetting what's happening around. They forget what, she read, what they read, what they learned. They forget their plan. They can behave in a way that usually would be considered unacceptable. 
regarding a civilized woman, for example, a woman can dare to scream, can dare to swear, have several significant stories of uh, women in hard labor who have been biting the midwife. Bite. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful sign mm -hmm. of a reduced neocortical control. That's a wonderful sign. Of course, this was associated with easy and fast birth. It means mm -hmm. really this woman could completely eliminate the neocortical control. And when there is no neocortical control, women can e easily find by themselves postures. That makes sense. Unexpected posture, bizarre, uh, unplanned, often primitive, quadrupedal, asymmetrical. Birth among humans is an asymmetrical process. Uh, uh, the, Posture that makes sense, uh, of bending forward, no compression of the vena cava, eliminating reason for fetal distress. So, so this, uh, when there is no neocortical control, it's as if the laboring woman is on another planet. Mm -hmm. This is the solution that nature found to make birth possible among humans. When you understand that, you can easily explain what are the basic needs of laboring women. It, it, this is what we need to understand now, mm -hmm. after thousands of years mm -hmm. of socialization of childbirth, we need physiological perspectives to explain, to re rediscover basic needs of laboring women. A laboring woman needs to be protected against all possible stimulants of her neocortex. Mm -hmm. That first one is language, language, that. It means when a woman is in labor, the enemy is language. Mm -hmm. It means silence, basic need. But there are other stimulants of the neocortex. One, one is light. light. Until recently, that was empiric knowledge. Mm. Today, it's different. Today, we understand how it works. Because today, we know about the darkness hormone No, 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 no. Darkness hormone is called melatonin. Oh, melatonin. It's called melatonin. Right. And uh, melatonin is uh, released uh, when, when there is in the, in the dark. <laughs> That's why it's called darkness hormone. It means that when we are exposed to light, we cannot release melatonin, darkness hormone. And we can explain today what is empiric knowledge, in fact, that melatonin can reduce neocortical activity. Mm. It's empiric knowledge. When people are ready to, go, go to fall asleep, they switch off the light. Right. So they release their darkness hormone, reduce neocortical activity, and, f and fall asleep more, more easily. And today, I don't want to give details, but we can explain how darkness hormone, melatonin, can uh, reduce neocortical activity. We know the links between melatonin and a neuromediator called GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. We don't need details, but this is a main inhibitory neurotransmitter. So we can explain that. New, but what is new? What is new? And we deviate a little bit from the concept of neocortical inhibition, is that recently, that was in July 2014, a team from Florida has revealed that there are 
uterine receptors to melatonin. Mm. The uterus is directly sensitive to melatonin, the darkness hormone. That's a very important wow. finding. And furthermore, they found that uterine receptor to melatonin work together, are synergetic, they work together, the oxytocin receptors. Mm. So what we understand today, to mm. summarize, that the darkness hormone, melatonin, is an important birth hormone, mm. working with oxytocin. That's something new. It means the importance of being protected The key word is protection, yeah. not only against language, but also against light. But there are other stimulants of the neocortex. Can you just briefly, <laughs> briefly, there, I know you have a lot to say on this, um, talk about the importance of oxytocin in labor as well, because we've referred to it a couple times, but not everyone's going to know um, what oxytocin is and, and the importance in childbirth. Yes. Uh, it's sure that it's not so important to know the name of the hormones. Right. <laughs> Oxytocin is one of the birth hormones, like uh, endorphins, prolactin, vasopressin. We know today melatonin. Uh, what's important to know is not so much the name of the hormones, finally. is <laughs> much more to realize that they come from primitive brain structures. That, Got it. And that... Uh, what's im important to understand that they cannot be released as long as there is a neocortical activity, the thinking brain is active, cannot be released. So, and the factor that can inhibit the release of this hormonal flow, oxytocin being one, the main one, are not just language and light, it's also all attention enhancing situation. Hmm. For example, feeling observed. Mm. If you feel observed, you pay attention to yourself. It means that the basic need of a liberal woman is not to feel observed. Or perception of possible danger. You have to pay attention. It's one way among many others when you think like physiologists, to explain that a basic need is to feel secure. But the point I want to emphasize is that today, when we think like modern physiologists, the key word is protection. Mm -hmm. Protecting an involuntary process against some possible inhibitory situations. Mm -hmm. And when we use as a point of departure this concept of neocortical inhibition, important among humans, because we are special, because of our powerful neocortex, it's easy to explain to anybody what are, from this perspective, the basic need of living women, starting from the keyword protection, protection. And you are also going to talk about the cultural perspective that, the difference between um, the view of the modern physiologist and um, I think societal or cultural uh, conditioning, or I forgot the, the yeah, exact Yeah, cultural conditioning, yes. Yeah. It's sure that when we speak like physiologists, when you explain that this involuntary process cannot be helped, cannot help, but you can try to protect it, <laughs> avoiding. It's sure that immediately, 
you realize the contradiction with our cultural conditioning. Mm -hmm. The basis of our cultural conditioning, it has been like that for thousands of years, since the beginning of the society of childbirth, is just a little more obvious today, but finally it's a long story. The basis of our cultural conditioning is that a woman has not the power to give birth by herself. That's the basis. So uh, we can illustrate that different ways. Uh, for example, uh, analyzing the words, the root of the word, what obstetric means, from Latin obstare. Obstetric in Latin is the midwife. Obstare, staying in front of. It means that it suggests that to give birth, a woman cannot give birth by herself. She needs somebody staying in front of her. That mm -hmm. meaning of, of, of tetrix is an example. Or when you look at many perinatal beliefs, rituals, apparently a great variety of perinatal beliefs and rituals, but the effects are always the same. Often, they make artificially still more necessary the active participation of an agent of the cultural milieu, making more necessary the help of somebody. The, 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 the key word in the dominant paradigm, dominant way of thinking, cultural, is helping. You need help. Mm -hmm. you, need help. you cannot give up by yourself. You know? And this is reinforced by ritual. For example, suppose there have been, you are in a country where they practice ritual, genital mutilation, mm -hmm the effect of a hard perineal scar that makes the birth artificially more difficult, somebody must be there to open the, the way, to cut the perineum. Or, many cultures have uh, adopted this ritual of cut, cut, rushing to cut the umbilical cord mm -hmm. before the delivery of the placenta. So, there is a belief High widespread belief that when a woman is giving birth, somebody must be there who knows how to cut the umbilical cord. So, when you analyze many beliefs, many rituals, you you realize that uh, artificially, we we make still more necessary the active participation of somebody, an agent of the cultural milieu. So this is a dominant paradigm. Is what I call to simplify the helping, guiding, coaching, supporting, managing a paradigm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it means that in this case, the key word is always about the role of another person than the two obligatory actors in childbirth. In childbirth, there are only two obligatory actors, mother and baby. Mm -hmm. But the key words with our cultural conditioning are about the role of somebody else. The keyword is helping, but from that it's controlling, guiding, coaching, and so on. But it's cultural. It means, and that's an important point, it's not special to one group of people or another group of people. It's cultural. For example, because we look at the vocabulary, group people promoting natural childbirth that introduce the term Coaching. Right. Coaching. What does it mean? It means you are not able to give birth. 
you need an expert who can guide you. In medical circles, medical literature, medical journal, they talk about labor management. Mm-hmm. It's the same way of thinking. Group promoting natural childbirth, medical circles, it's the same way of thinking, the same cultural conditioning, the same vocabulary. They ask a young woman who had with her baby, who delivered your baby? And the answer they are expecting is not the woman saying, I gave birth. Right. They give, she gives the name of who delivered the baby. This is the dominant paradigm. You see the contrast with the birth process as it can be understood in the light of modern physiology. And we must say that today we have reached the limits of this dominant paradigm, of this cultural conditioning. We are uh, at the edge of the precipice. We have reached the limits. Say more about what do you mean by we have reached the limits? Reach the limits can be explained different ways. For example, you can explain that until recently, to give birth to the baby and to the placenta, a woman was obliged to rely on the release of a mixture of hormones. The main one is oxytocin. And we know today about these hormones. We can say to simplify, this is a cocktail of hormones of love. So that had been like that. But now, now, we can observe once more. It's an observation. I'm not talking about opinions. Now, now means the age of synthetic oxytocin, drips of what is called pistocin in America, mm-hmm. replacing natural oxytocin. Today, age of simplified technique of cesarean section. We can observe that at a planetary level, it's not special to develop country at a planetary level, the number of women who give birth to the baby and to the placenta, thanks to the release of a cocktail of love hormones, this number is becoming insignificant. Wow. That's a way to say we are at the bottom of the uh, at the edge of the precipice. So <laughs> so what's on the it's an what's example. On, what's on the other side or what's like what what's after the edge, <laughs> like so, that's, that's what your new book's about. Uh, about midwifery. That's the question. Yeah, we are at the edge of the precipice. I explain that by taking the example of love hormone. Important to realize that we can explain that different ways. For example, another way, when understood among people with a scientific background, that until recently, as soon as baby was born, it's immune system was immediately programmed, uh, educated, we might say, by millions of millions of uh, microbes. Mm? The immune system baby has to be stimulated to become functional. Mm-hmm. And baby, uh, immediately the baby's body is colonized by millions and millions of microbes. That to be born, to be born is to enter the world of microbes. So what we can explain that until recently, women were giving birth is in a, in a bacteriologically familiar environment. And babies were born through the, the, the perineal route, perineum, 
which is bacteriologically rich part of the body. So we can say that until recently, baby's body was colonized by microbes familiar to the mother. Mm-hmm. Microbes familiar to the mother are already familiar and friendly for the baby because the human placenta is effective at transferring the antibodies called IgG. So until now, mm. it was like that. IgG. IgG, yeah, yeah. antibodies, yeah. IgG. So until now, it was, it was like that. The immune system of newborn babies was immediately educated by microbes familiar to the mother. But now, most women don't give birth in a bacteriologically familiar environment. Mm-hmm. Many babies are exposed to antibiotics in the period of birth, whatever the reason. And even some babies are not born by the perineal route. They are born in a sterile environment of an operating room uh, by cesarean section. So Can suddenly, I ask a question really quick? Why are we saying perineal instead of vagina? Pardon? Why are we saying perineal instead of vagina? I'm just curious if there's a... From a bacteriological perspective, uh-huh. it's very different. Okay. The microbes in the perineum have many similarities or influenced by gut flora, microbes right. coming from the anus. Yeah. Microbes in the vagina are different. Mm. Are different. So, uh, and it's probable that uh, in, it's because we interfere a lot, we do vaginal exam, we do, that, that only a small number of babies are born with the coal, the, born with the intact membranes, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, it was probably much more common before the cessation of childbirth. It means that in this case, Babies were not exposed to vaginal, vaginal microbes. Hmm. They were born protected by the membranes, membranes. And in many societies, in all societies, they had the same observation. That so babies born with the cold will be healthy, lucky, good luck. So finally, that's why we have to make a difference between vaginal flora and perineal flora. It's not the same. Yeah, fascinating. I'm really into gut health and and the relationship of gut health and everything else, all our immune system and all of that. I'm fascinated by that and have been doing my own healing around healing my gut flora and developing a strong gut. Um, so what you're saying is it's actually the the microbes that they're exposed to as they leave the vagina and pass over the perineum which actually come from the intestines from the anus that's that's really essential um bacteria or microbes for for the babies to yes, develop and, immune system and, and and the microbes around the skin of the mother uh-huh. so uh microbes around can be familiar or not familiar, mm-hmm. then the skin of the mother, the microbe from the mouth of the mother, things like that. Got it. So let's say that in general, until recently, babies were, the baby's body was colonized by microbes coming t- f- uh, familiar to the mother. And now it's not like that. It's another way. We have reached an extreme point to say that we are 
at the edge of the precipice. You know? We can expect many dysregulations of the human system. Perhaps it's already starting, you know, so <laughs> allergy diseases, auto-immune diseases. Immune system is health. Hmm? So it's a mm -hmm. big issue. So many reasons to say we are at the edge of the precipice. What will happen next? Hmm?